Kimberly here. This is Macabish, cults, classics, and horrors. We're talking films, series, books, and life, and we're starting right now. Hellraiser, you started with the third one. So when did you actually yeah. see the first one? Um, so I started with the third one in theaters on whatever the opening weekend was. I think it, I think it opened in 92. Mm-hmm. I don't remember for sure, but I, I feel like it was 91 or 92. Um, after that, um, I went to a local video store, which was close to my high school. I could walk to it. And I was friends with the, um, with the owner and manager of the video store. Mm-hmm. So I figured, I knew, okay, now I need to go back and I need to watch the previous Hellraiser movies. Right. They only had Hellbound. So they only had Hellraiser 2. Oh, So I rented that one and I took it home and I watched it. And going from 3 to 2 is quite a bit different because the the feel of the second movie versus the third movie is completely different. The oh, third yeah. movie is basically, it's, it's Pinhead Unbound, the third movie. It's completely and fully a pinhead movie. Right. The first and second ones are obviously not. Right. You know, they're they're driven by a completely different um, motivation type, and Pinhead and the Cenobites are really just catalysts in the first two movies. So I, I, I did, so I watched three in the theater, I watched two on video, and of course because I hadn't, didn't have the benefit of having seen the first one, I was a little bit lost, but... Mm-hmm. I was able to pick up most of it, and the um, the visuals. Again, I was just I was blown away by the visuals. Um, the you know the, the Leviathan Diamond, um, the transformation chamber for you know when Chenard is transformed. Mm-hmm. The visuals of you know Frank's version of Hell, and you know um, uh, the Chenard's you know seeing Hell and the whole thing with um, shoot what was her name. Tiffany, you know, opening the, the puzzle box. Oh, yeah. Like, just visually, it was such a stunning movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that was, I mean, that was really where I started to realize that, like, horror can be art. Right. Because up to that point, I mean, I was familiar with Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Halloween and all of the slasher-type horror movies because that's what, you know, I, I would typically have access to. Those are what would show up on TV. Those are what was readily available on video. So those are what I had been watching. Mm-hmm. So to go into Hellraiser, which is something that has such a a strong, not not really a strong moral code, but mm-hmm. a strong code and a strong set of rules, right. was so different. And the visuals in it were just so different than anything I had been seen before. It really it opened up my eyes to a, a greater appreciation of what a horror movie can actually be. So then, of course, I had to track down the first one. And I ended up finding that, I think, in a Blockbuster video a couple of weeks later. And at that point in time, Blockbuster, I don't know if it was the same in, in the States, but in Canada, they were very strict about what they would and would not rent to somebody who was under 18. So I couldn't, they wouldn't let me rent Hellraiser by myself. Oh. So I had to get my mom to go and rent me Hellraiser oh my <laughs> so that I could watch it. Okay. And, I mean, because, of course, I wasn't thinking when they 
asked me how old I was, I just I answered honestly. I said, "Well, I'm 16." I said, "Well, we can't rent it to you." Had I been even remotely thinking, I would have just said, "I'm 18." Right. Because they didn't ask for any. Like they would just go, "Okay, whatever, go ahead." Right. But no, I had to go and be an honest Canadian <laughs> and tell them the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Damn my Canadian honesty. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, so you know, but a couple weeks later, I watched the first Hellraiser, and it filled in very nicely the blanks from having watched Hellraiser two. And, again, like, and, and that one, of course, at the time, I hadn't realized was actually directed by Clive Barker. And to see his visual storytelling style and the way it flows so beautifully into Hellbound, I was just, I was, I was blown away, and I, just, I fell completely in love with Hellraiser as a whole. And I, I went out and I tracked down the comics, and I picked up a copy of the Hellbound Heart, and I read that. Like I've read that probably half a dozen times, if not more, at this point. And I just I, I immersed myself as much as I possibly could in that universe. Mm-hmm. And it didn't hurt that I kind of fell in love with Ashley Lawrence. She's like my number one Hollywood crush. <laughs> I love okay. her so much. I think she is just like she is so incredibly gorgeous. I love her so much, and she seems like she's such a nice person. Like, I just I want to hang out with Ashley Lawrence. I just think she would be awesome. <laughs> I hope so, because there there have been times... Yeah. Well, especially now that I've said it. Like, if I get an email <laughs> from somebody, like, yeah, Ashley Lawrence is a jerk. I oh, no. <laughs> and now I might get a nasty email from Ashley Lawrence, which would be cool. Ashley it really Lawrence, would if you're be. listening, send me a nasty email. Me Please. too. I would love it. Me too. Thank you. But uh, it's, I, I, um, I follow her on Instagram. I love her pictures. I just, I think she's, I think she's wonderful. Um, I've seen almost everything she's in. I have a bunch of movies that she's in. I I love her. I think she's great. Awesome. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> aside from aside from my 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 gushing fanboy crush on Ashley Lawrence, um, Hellraiser from from that point really became for me the the pinnacle of what is a perfect horror movie. Mm-hmm. Like I I would classify that as a perfect horror movie. And I have very much enjoyed um, introducing it to a number of people as time has gone on. Um, you know, I bought a, a VHS, I, I bought a used VHS copy of Hellraiser and Hellbound. As soon as I could, I bought a used VHS copy of Hellraiser 3 as soon as I could. And I used to take them with me to parties. If I was going invited to a party that, you know, yeah, I had there were a bunch of people that I hadn't been to, and it was a horror movie party, or whatever. I would always, invariably, I would bring Hellraiser. That's that's awesome. And almost, almost every time, I would hit where nobody had seen it because at that point in time, it was like people were aware of Hellraiser, but I think, and this is probably very similar to me. Everybody had a different impression of what it actually is. Mm-hmm. Because by that point, I mean, we had Hellraiser 3, and Hellraiser 3, I mean, really at the core, is more of a slasher movie than a Hellraiser movie. Right. Because it, it is, because it's Pinhead, and, you know, especially in the scene in the in the bar where he's just released from the, the pillar, what does he do? The first thing he does is he kills an entire bar full of people. Right. So, I mean, at this point, everybody's impression of Hellraiser is, okay, it's a slasher movie. Right. And, I mean, that is absolutely the furthest from what Hellraiser is. Right. Um, and so I, I would have,
have people that we would watch the first one, and uh, every night I don't, I, I can watch that movie, you know, day after day after day, and I will always just be sucked into it. Like there is no point where I think I will look at it and be like, yeah, I'm bored with Hellraiser. I don't think that will ever happen. And I mean, if it ever does happen, then I'm fairly confident that I'll be like, well, now I'm done. I got nothing else. Uh -oh. I'm bored with Hellraiser. What else? Well, what else can I do? Nothing. Yeah. But you know, every single time by the end of the movie, everybody would look at me and they'd be like, wow, that was not what I expected. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, Hellraiser. Hellraiser has him first of all. Doug Bradley, like Pinhead and the Settlebites are on screen for maybe 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Maybe? If that? Yeah. You know, it, it, like, you've got, what have you got in Hellraiser? You've got a skinless man walking around. Mm -hmm. You've got, you know, this illicit love affair. You've got this conniving, cheating wife. You've got this, you know, the young girl who is possibly, at some point, has been abused by somebody. Like, it, 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 there's, a, there's so much undertone in that movie that is not immediately visible until you actually sit down and watch it. Right. And, you know, it really, is like in the first movie, um, your villains are, are never Pinhead in the settlement. They're never the villains. The fact that, that Pinhead has become a movie monster classified as that is, is completely wrong. I don't agree that Pinhead and the Cenobites are monsters in any way whatsoever. They are brought about by the monsters in humanity. Right. You know, the, the first movie, who's your villain? Your, your villain is Uncle Frank. Yep. And your villain is, um, shoot, I just, I completely drew a blank on, what's her name? Claire Higgins' character. What the heck was her name? The wife. I, I forget. Right. It'll come to me shortly. And I'm sure everybody who's listening is like, oh my God, her name is this, you idiot. But, oh, no. yeah, it'll come to me. But anyway, <laughs> so the first one, the, the villain is clearly Uncle Frank. You know, and he's the one who is driving everything horrible that happens throughout the course of that movie. Right. The second movie, your villain is now the, the resurrected wife, Claire Hayes. Julia. And Dr. Chenard. Sorry? Julia. Julia. It. Julia. That's it. Thank you. You're welcome. It was right there, like at the front of my brain, and I don't know why I blanked. That anyway, happens Julia. to yeah. me all the time. So, Good. Yeah. The second one, obviously, you know, Julia is the driving force. She manipulates Chenard, who was already very sketchy to begin with. So these are, they're the villains. The, the Cenobites and Hell is never the villain. And Hell is also never really presented so much as a punishment. It's almost, throughout the, the course of, anyway, the first two movies at the very least, Hell is something that people are striving for. The whole purpose of you know, tracking down Le Marchand's box and the next configuration and opening it is because you want more. You right. want more experience. You want more. You want more. You want more. You want more. So, like, you're, you're looking for this ultimate reward. And the ultimate reward happens to now be what you get in hell. And that's, you know, the, the, that's how it works out. Right. What, what I love about... Um, uh, Pinhead and the Cenobites and, and Leviathan and that whole thing is there are such ironclad rules that these creatures need to follow. Mm -hmm. when you, if you look at if you look at a slasher film, if you look at Michael Myers or Jason or Freddy Krueger or any of those slasher type characters, 
they're really, they don't have rules per se. Like, it, I mean, they, they're, they're, Freddy Krueger is within the guidelines of he has to, you know, it's a dream sequence, blah, blah, blah. But they don't have ironclad rules that they must follow. They can really basically do whatever they want. Jason can do whatever he wants. Michael Myers can do pretty much whatever he wants. Freddy mm-hmm. Krueger, at the end of the day, can basically do whatever he wants. Right. The, the rules laid out by Hell and by Leviathan that um, Pinhead and the Order of the Gash and the Cenobites need to follow are incredibly strict, and, and it's, it's, it's very clearly laid out in a single line in Hellbound, which always sticks with me, which comes right after Chenard has tricked Tiffany into opening the box. Mm-hmm. So she opens the box, the lights come up, the walls open up, Pinhead comes in, Chatterer comes in, uh, you know, Barbie Wilde as the, the female Cenobite comes in. Beautiful, beautiful shot. They're all, you know, stoked to grab poor little Tiffany, who's sitting there and has no idea what she's just done. Mm-hmm. And Doug Bradley at Pinhead says, no, we don't take her. What draws us is the desire, not the hands. So the desire was Chenard's. He tried to play the, play the game and have somebody else open the box to see what happened. Right. So they're, they're, they're held in place by, these iron, by this ironclad rule that says you can't take someone who doesn't want to be taken. As opposed to, you know, your Jasons and your Michael Myers and your Freddy Krueger, they're just like, whatever, they, they just kill willy-nilly. You know, whether you want it or not, they're going to get you. Right. And it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's, that under, it's that rule that I think makes Pinhead not a monster for me. Okay. Because he's, he's not driven to do evil. Mm-hmm. Or he's not driven, well... Until you get to part three, which is a little outside of that, where, you know, they say, okay, well, now he's evil because he's the embodiment of balance, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's, it's a bit of a gray area when it comes to some fans will say, you know, three is absolutely canon. Others will say, well, not really. So it's it just, it's, it's a difficult sort of place to find. I love all of them. But, right. um, you know, with that in mind, like, they're not specifically evil characters. They're not specifically monsters. And even as you go into the later movies, um, after Bloodline, you go into Inferno and Hellseeker and Deader and all of those ones, at no point is Pinhead really the villain. I mean, in Inferno, there's, I mean, it's, it's fairly heavily revealed that he's been manipulating a lot of things, but mm-hmm. his manipulation only began after... Thorne, Craig Shepard's character, opened the box initially right. and discovered what was going on. So, like, it, 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 they're all driven by that inherent, that inherent drive in, in humans to always seek more. Right. And I think that as an underlying morality within the Hellraiser universe is what makes it the most interesting. Because you, you can watch it and, I mean, you can almost relate to the characters mm-hmm. more so than I can in something like Friday the 13th. Like, I, I, I can't relate to, you know, the characters who are getting chased by Jason in Friday the 13th. Right. Like, whatever, you're being chased by Jason, it's bad luck, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. For the most part, you know you're going to the wrong place at the wrong time, but you still went there because you're all stupid. Like, I, I'm quite confident that people, characters in horror movies never actually watch horror movies. <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. They really don't. And if a character in a horror movie actually watched horror movies, they wouldn't do half of the crap that they do. No, they would not. All that running upstairs. What in the hell? Exactly. You know, the door is right there, but you went upstairs. Right. Go with the door. Right. But the door is outside. There's lots of places you can go. Right. What do you do? You gotta hide the closet. There's no way out of that closet. Right. But you're in. That's it. You're in. Even, like, Scream, and I know what you did last summer, that are written as, you know, their characters are all horror movie fanatics. They still do stupid horror movie things. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, like, you admit that you watch horror movies all the time, but you're still doing all of these things that you say you should never do. And, uh, you know, I get that, you know, it's, it's, uh, they're a satire of the, of the genre, and I enjoy them for what they are. Right. Um, but, I mean, really, when it comes to, um, the horror movies with rules, I find that the, the Hellraiser ones are, for the most part, the ones that have stuck as closely to the initial rules as they can. Yeah. And they usually try and follow the same general, um, that general guideline to say, you know what, as much as it's hell and it's evil and it's bad and blah, 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 we're not bringing in our demon characters until somebody actually calls upon them. So they're not just appearing out of nowhere. And, I mean, even in, even in three, which version of the, the Hellraiser series, it still makes sense, mm-hmm. because the Pinhead having been trapped in the pillar is really technically free of Hell's rules at that point. Right. So, as a, a newly freed being, the first thing he's going to do, obviously, is figure out a way to never be trapped again, which is why he goes after um, Joey Summerskill to get that box back, and why he needs to make sure that that box is in his possession. So nobody can reopen it. He can't be sent back. So he can just continue to do as he sees fit. Right. Which really makes sense. Like, he's been, he's, he's been held for... Um, they established Elliot Spencer was in World War One. So at this point, he's been held to these very strict guidelines for 80 years, say. Mm-hmm. You know, which, I mean, in, in the long run of probably hell existing, it's not that long. But right. to all of a sudden be free after 80 years to be able to kind of do what you want, it does make sense in a way that he would go a little overboard. Well, yeah. And the fact that he had been at the end of Hellbound, the fact that he has been separated from the humanity of Elliot Spencer also you know, adds to that because he doesn't have that that memory of what it was to be human right. at any point in his life. Mm-hmm. So really he's just able to be completely what hell would have intended him to be had it not had rules. Right. So, and I think also because Hellraiser 3 was the first one I ever saw, it has a very special place in my heart. Um, it was also the hardest one to find on DVD because the, it's, it's weird. The, um, the release life of Hellraiser 3 is completely different than all of the other ones. Hmm. When when 3 went into production, um, it was initially under, I think, under New World. Uh, but New World closed, like, shut up, closed up shop before it actually went into full production. So it kind of floated around for a while. And then Dimension, which was really a startup at that point, it was uh, just a branch of Miramax, I think, at that point, picked it up for production, 
moved everything to New York because it was originally supposed to be shot in England where the first two were. Moved the whole thing to New York, shot it there on a lower budget. It's also why um, Doug Bradley is the only recurring actor other than the flashback sequence with Ashley Lawrence, which honestly they could have shot just about anywhere. Right. She's just on video. Yeah. So it's all new Cenobites because they, I mean, they didn't spring to bring, you know, Barbie Wilde over, Nicholas Vince over, Simon Bamford. They didn't want to bring any of that over. They wanted, like, a fresh start. But obviously they needed Pinhead because he was, at that point, the face of Hellraiser. So, and, you know, Anthony Hickox, who didn't have a lot behind him at the time that he made Hellraiser 3, I think visually he's a, a fantastic director. I love everything he's done. Um, the Waxworks movies, the second Warlock movie, like everything he has done, I think is, is visually fantastic. He's an amazing visual storyteller, Anthony Hickox. I, I love his work so much. And he had um, Marshall in both um, Hellraiser 3 and the second Warlock movie, and she's another one of my Hollywood crushes. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of Hollywood crushes that come out of horror movies. It's weird. Um, but anyway, so the, that whole production got moved and it, the budget ended up getting cut. So they, they really, it was a, a rushed production. So for what they had available, they did a fantastic job. And I mean, Pete Atkins as the writer did amazing. He did his, his, the best that he could to stick with the, uh, the universe that was established. I don't really know what ended up getting altered or cut. It, it doesn't have the same history as Bloodline has, so I don't really know what may have been changed as it was being produced. Um, Bloodline, I, I, I know, was, was horribly butchered compared to what it was supposed to be versus what actually came out, mm -hmm. um, to the point where uh, Kevin Yeager, who directed it, had his name taken off, which is why all of your prints of Bloodline are an Alex Smithy movie, because he had his name taken off of it. Right. Um, so... And that, actually, Bloodline, I think, was the last one to have a theatrical release. Uh, I know it was the last one I saw in theaters. I managed, I actually got to see Bloodline in the, a theater in, like, two days that it was open here. Yeah, I've never seen any of them um, in the theater. You're lucky. Yeah, well, I lucked out. It was another one I lucked out on. Um, I, was in, um, I was in college at the time, and um, me and a couple of the girls from class, we were like, oh, let's go see a movie after class. So we went, and, you know, we went out, and we had lunch, and we, or we had dinner. And, you know, we were just hanging around this plaza where there was a movie theater. And I saw on their marquee that it was Hellraiser Bloodline. And I, I knew the movie was coming, but I had no idea that it would actually open up here. Because a lot of times the, um, the smaller horror movies don't get a huge opening in Canada. Right. You know, they might end up in a couple of the art house theaters in Toronto or they might run the Toronto Film Festival or something like that. But very rarely would they get a bigger opening like that. So the fact that it was in a theater was shocking. And, of course, the two um, girls I was with had never seen a Hellraiser before in their lives. And I don't know how I convinced them to go, but we all ended up going to see Hellraiser Bloodline. That's and cool. I, I enjoyed Bloodline in the format that it did. Mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's an okay movie. It's a nice 
find it there. It's uh, Hellraiser 4 Reconstruction. And they picked up everything they could find from the work print and from the original movie, and they filled in blanks with some not perfect little, like, um, CGI animation that he's obviously done himself. But it, it filled in what the movie could have been. That's cool. And it's one of those ones that I look at it and I think, that's something that, you know, if, if I was an executive at Dimension, I would say, listen, instead of making another low-budget Hellraiser movie, let's take that money and let's put it into restoring Hellraiser 4. That would and be let's awesome. Give, let's give the fans what could have been. Right. You know, and, and the same thing, well, actually, um, Warner is doing it right now with um, Zack Snyder and his cut of Justice League, which I think is fantastic. I'm excited to see that. Um, but it, like that's, you know, if I had any control at Dimension, that's what I would probably do. Instead of saying, you know, let's make another Hellraiser movie to hold the right, well, let's go back and let's rebuild Hellraiser 4. And let's give it a proper release, and that is our, you know, swan song for Hellraiser, and say, listen, here is what could have been taken for what it is and go from there. Right. So, after that, we move into um, Hellraiser Inferno and Hellseeker and Deader and Hellworld. Um, so those four, I think three, at least three, maybe all four of them, three anyway, were directed by Rick Boda, who did a, a really solid job. Um, he came off of being a, a DOP. He was DOP on Glimmerman and a number of other um, fairly big-budget action-type movies and some other horror movies. So he came off of those and various other pieces, I'm sure, that he'd done and moved into Hellraiser. And as much as uh, those movies, they, like, each one is a, is a relatively solid movie on its own, none of those four were actually written initially as a Hellraiser movie. Every single one of those was another script that Dimension was sitting on that they had somebody else rewrite and jam Hellraiser into it. Sounds lovely. It, yeah, it, I mean, it worked moderately well with Inferno. Um, it worked okay with Hellseeker. When you get to Deader and Hellworld, it's really like it really feels like in those two, the Hellraiser universe was literally just like slapped on at the last minute. Yeah. What I like about Hellseeker, which is I think that's the sixth one, is it brings back Ashley Lawrence as Christy Cotton. She's in a completely new circumstance. She's grown up. She's married. She's got this horrible lech of a cheating husband who's an absolute guts. And I hated every minute of him, not just because he was with Asher Lawrence, but because I'm supposed to hate that character. Um, you know, and he, he gives her the box as an anniversary gift, and he's just obsessed with this idea that, you know, she can open it and, you know, hell, and we can get everything he wants, blah, blah, blah. And what I loved about that is it, it, it brings back that it tries to tie itself into the original continuity. So it actually, I mean, it acknowledges the fact that, you know, it's not technically originally a Hellraiser movie, but let's at least try to, to link it. Right. And it did a, a fairly good job. And seeing a, a more mature Kirsty Cotton once again encountering a more mature Pinhead, I, I, just, I really like that as a closer to her story. Okay. And I thought that worked very well to 
tie off her story in the movie universe and to say, okay, you know, she's still around, she still does it, and she still has this hanging over her. Yeah. So I, I did, I, I really enjoyed that, and I mean, seeing Doug and Ashley back together again on screen was fantastic. I, I will never say anything bad about having those two together. And, you know, if I could have any control over making a sequel, I would go back and I would say, listen, if we want to do it, we have to do it, go back to the original movies and give us Kirstie Cotton and Pinhead, you know, now 30 years later, and let's see how things have changed. And that was done very nicely in um, the Boom Studios comic series, which I'll get into in a bit because that comes after everything else. Um, so we go from Hellseeker into Getter, which really is a bit of a mess of a movie. Um, and then Hellworld, which has Lance Henderson in it, and Lance Henderson is always fantastic. Always. I don't care what he's doing. I will watch Lance Henderson do pretty much anything. Yep, I would watch too. Lance Henderson with sneeze. Yep. Because first of all, that's going to be a badass sneeze if Lance Henderson is doing it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like he's just, I don't know, he, and he has aged so incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I love him when he's younger in Near Dark and Terminator and Aliens, and I love him now that he's a million years old. Right. <laughs> like he is fantastic. Oh, yeah. And as much as, you know, as he's gotten older, he's gotten more badass. Like, even now, he's, I have no idea, he's got to be in his 70s. Right. If not, then very close. I still wouldn't want to mess with Lance Henderson. <laughs> awesome. I mean, first of all, your name is Lance. Unfortunately, that is a very heavy loss. 
It really is. Especially in Revelations. The, the main issue I have with Revelation is is not that Doug was not Pinhead. I mean, that's a huge sticking point for me because, I mean, really Doug is Pinhead. But the, the first of all, the actor they, they had replacing him was far too physically imposing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a, a, a massive, well over six feet, you know, bodybuilder type actor. So he's a big man. Right. And the, the second concern I have, not only that size, because I mean, I, I don't really see that Pinhead needs to be a physically imposing character. Right. Do you know why they Michael chose Myers, him? Yeah. Needs to be physically imposing. Jason, Kane Hodder, physically imposing. Perfect. Right. Pinhead does not need to be a physically imposing character. Right. Sorry, you were, you were asking me something, and I totally cut you off. <laughs> well, I was just wondering if you had any idea why they chose him, because it just doesn't make any sense. I think it's... I don't know for sure. Um, I've read a few different things. I think at the end of the day, what it really came down to was they were rushed to go into production. Because mm-hmm. the, the way that the... Um, and the way that it works to, to hold the rights of the movie is they have to do something with it within a certain timeline. Right. Otherwise, the rights of the movie revert back to whoever had them previously. Right. So they needed to make this Hellraiser movie, and they were really crushed for time. And I, I think as much as they would have, you know, they obviously they went through the audition process, I really feel like it was he was a last-minute decision. You would have thought somebody would have had somebody in mind. You know how we do the fan casting? Why weren't they doing that? Exactly. And I I mean, I know it was, um, I I mean, I don't know for sure, because obviously I I haven't spoken to Doug Bradley about it. When I did meet and speak with Doug Bradley, it was actually before Hellworld came out. So that's a separate piece entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that um, they had optioned it to Doug. And he, um, I don't know if he had read the script and declined, but from what I heard, they, I mean, obviously at any point in the movie, you have to sign a, a, an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, because your movie's not in production, so they don't want the ideas floating around. And that's standard practice. Right. You know, all of the actors, as part of their contract, they need to sign this non-disclosure agreement. From what I've heard and what I've read, which was in the encapsulated in, a portion of an interview with Doug, so it may have been taken out of context, I don't really know for sure, they had wanted him to put up a million-dollar bond with this NDA. Oh. And a million-dollar bond was higher than the budget for the movie. Right. Like, I think the total budget for the movie was half a million dollars. That's crazy. Um, I have a, a theory as to why they had wanted that. I think... At the end of the day, as much as they optioned it to Doug, I don't think they wanted him to come back. Right. But I don't know for sure. Like I, I that's just a that's just a guess. Right. I don't know. Um, you know, and like I said, what the information that I provided just now comes from an interview that I read that was really just a chunk of an interview. So it may have been taken out of context. I don't know. Really, the only person who knows why Doug didn't do it would be Doug. Right. You know, and that's that's all there is to it. Yeah. Um, but so they, they replaced him with this very large man who, he, you know what, he gave it a good shot. He really tried. You can see he's really trying. He looked very uncomfortable in the makeup. He really did. 
he, like, he really did. And the suit, like, the costume, didn't fit him right. No, it did not at all. And, I was amazed. I, mean, I know it wasn't Doug's costume. That right. they just, they, they, you know, they may have taken it and upsized the, the pattern for Doug's costume or whatever. But it, it, like, you can see in, you know, the way the glove fits on his hand, it just it did not fit him right. It didn't yeah. hang on him right. It wasn't proportioned correctly. It really felt like it was rushed, which is another, it kind of adds to my feeling that the, that whole production was rushed at the last minute. Right. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, the, you know, the makeup that um, Gary Tunnicliffe did, fantastic. He's always done amazing makeup work on all of the Hellraiser movies with a very limited budget and very limited time. I, I thought the makeup effects were fantastic. I, I did enjoy the idea of, like, the, the junior pinhead. I thought that was an interesting take on, you know, the, the Cenobites and how he's turning him very slowly into another pinhead, mm-hmm. which I thought, okay, that was, you know, it was neat. Um, overall, from a, like, from a movie standpoint, it, 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 just, it, it doesn't, it's not, it, it really is not a good movie. No, it is not. There's nothing really more I can say about it. Right. I appreciate it for what it is, for the fact that it is a Hellraiser movie. Right. It's part of my collection. When I watch them, I watch it. Like, I go through the whole series when I watch them. I don't just do, like, a couple here and there. Mm-hmm. And every time I watch it, I see something in it that I think, okay, you know what? That's, there's some very good shots in it. There's some very good scenes in it. Um, some pieces of dialogue are very good. Some dialogue is very questionable. Yeah. You know, and the whole thing with, the, you know, the guy steals the skin and he ends up making up with his sister that's not his sister, that's really disturbing. It really is. Like, I find that whole sequence really disturbing. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though we know it's not brother and sister, it is so incredibly disturbing. And, and that's saying like something. It's human sympathy disturbing. Right. And that's saying something because there's a lot of disturbing stuff in Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. But that's disturbing for Hellraiser. <laughs> exactly. Like that's you know, like the first time I watched it, it was it, it's so cringeworthy, and not because it's horribly acted. Like I think honestly, that's one of the better acted scenes in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. It's just like as far as the little blonde girl, who I have no idea who she is, as far as she knows, this is her brother. Right. You know, I as a viewer know that this is not the brother. Right. Although, even then, like, we're still not 100% certain at this point, but it's, it's already been very heavily implied that this is not her brother. Right. But the fact that she almost seems like she's into it when he tries to make out with her. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's what is the most disturbing part of it. Right. And I can never tell if that's the fault of, like, if, that, if it was written that way, or if that was just the the actress's interpretation when she was playing it. Right. And, you know, maybe that's how she plays kissing scenes, that she's so used to playing and being into it, that she just fell into that. Right. But I found that to be so incredibly disturbing, just how into it she seems to be. Yeah. And, you know, in her mind, this is her brother, who now wants to make out with her in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just, it's... It's an incredibly disturbing movie for that aspect alone. Right. That aside, um, you know, like I said, some great shots, some pretty solid dialogue here and there. 
a, a relatively nice, if not predictable, twist. Um, and it it leaves itself open that there could have been a direct sequel to Revelations. Right. Which I'm kind of disappointed didn't happen, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad it didn't happen. Yeah. Because I don't know that I would want a direct sequel to Revelations. Yeah. I don't think, for me, Revelations wasn't good enough for a direct sequel. Yeah, I don't think it, it doesn't need one. As much as it's open to one and they could have told another story within that same universe, it's not necessary. Right. You know, it it, it wasn't a strong enough movie on its own Mm -hmm. to warrant a direct continuation. Right. So I'm I'm very glad when they went to Judgment that um, Gary Tunnicliffe took an entirely different direction. Yeah, it needed it. I think, I, honestly, as much as a lot of people don't like it, I really like Hellraiser Judgment. I think it was done very well. Um, I love the fact, again, it was written as a Hellraiser movie. Mm -hmm. It was written and directed by Gary Tunnicliffe, who has now, at this point, been involved in the universe for over 20 years. Because he's been doing makeup since Hellraiser 3. Yeah. So he's incredibly invested in this universe. He knows the universe, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, again, we don't have Doug as Pinhead, um, yeah. but we have Paul Taylor now as Pinhead. Mm-hmm. And um, Tunnicliffe not only is the writer, director, makeup, he also plays the auditor character, and he, I think he did a fantastic job. I love that character. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a unique character. Um you have Heather Langenkamp in it for 30 seconds. She's the weird old landlord lady. Mm-hmm. So it was really neat to see a throwback to, like, a different franchise oh, thrown yeah. into this movie. Um, and visually, again, like it, it was a shoestring budget. I don't even know if it was a, a $500,000 budget. I have no idea. But Tunnicliffe did a, such an amazing job visually with set design, with his character design, everything was visually strong. But I don't think there is a single shot in Judgment that I would look at it and say, wow, that's horrible. There are some that are better than others, but there's not a single one that I would look at it and say, that's a horrible shot, it doesn't fit with the movie. Yeah. Um, I just, I I absolutely love the, um, the, the one character who starts as that giant fat Cenobite thing, and then explodes into this masked, like, executioner-type character early in the movie. That just, first of all, it shocked me to see that happen, because I wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. So it gave me a nice little jump scare, which is something I haven't had in a Hellraiser movie for a long time. Yeah. So it was nice to have that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, again, visually, it was so stunning. And um, Paul Taylor as Pinhead, I really think he did a fantastic job. Yeah. Because Unlike the the guy they had in Revelations, he did not try to emulate Doug Bradley. Right. And it's all through judgment. I don't feel like it's it's not the same pinhead. This is a different pinhead. Mm-hmm. Like it's a it's a different costume. He's got a, a different. He carries himself differently. His the, the dialogue is similar, but it's not like I can't. I can't picture Doug Bradley saying the same lines that Paul Taylor says. Yeah. Um, so, like, from from that standpoint, Judgment really is, it, 
be taken as an attempt to reboot the series. It's not a sequel. It makes no... It doesn't try to make a connection to the previous movies. Early in the movie, they even go out of their way to say, you know, using the box to open the gateway to hell is outmoded. It's old-fashioned. We need to find new ways to entice people. So right from the get-go, we're already saying this isn't the same universe you're used to. And having this completely new version as the hell priest is, like, it, it really helped to make the movie a better movie. Yeah. You know, again, as much as I miss Doug and Pinhead, I, I, I did like Paul Taylor's um, portrayal. I thought he did a fantastic job, and he, he made the character his own. Um, yeah. it's, Judgment is also the first Hellraiser movie where there is any connection to a heaven. At no point within the Hellraiser mythos before that had there been a heaven or an angel. And towards the end of Judgment, we have that angelic character who is coming down and saying, well, you know, you can't go outside of our agreement. And then, you know, he ends up destroying her and he gets punished for it. And by the end, they're turned back to human. But he's not Elliot Spencer. He's somebody else, completely. So from the very beginning, when we first see him, right to the end, we know this is not the same Pinhead. Yeah. And I've, I've had a, a rather heated <laughs> um, text argument with somebody about exactly that. And, and she completely disagreed with me and said, no, it's, he's supposed to be the same character. And because of that, it's, you know, he, did, he didn't do it. And he should have tried to be Doug. And... I feel exactly the opposite. No, he, I, I think good for him for taking such an iconic character and making it his own and uh, not emulating what came before. I actually agree with that. This is the number one place for macabre cults, classics, and horrors. For synopsis, reviews, and news, go to macabre.com. Thank you for listening. Signing out until the next one.